Welcome to Directly Correct, a Peablex podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Charles Handler. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. Because you're at, you're at the SIAP LEC, aren't you? I am taking, I, I left the programming right now to come uh, do this. But it was actually on an area that isn't really as interesting to me as some of the others. So. Well, we promise not to tell anybody on a podcast or anything like that. No, I want to talk about that I'm here. I mean, there's been some really interesting <laughs> stuff. It's actually been a very good uh, conference. Like, I'm, I'm very impressed so far. What are, what are some of the highlights? Well, I think just really good. So one of the things is I really like the format. The format is um, blocks of 15-minute presentations around a subject area. So um, even though you're sitting for two hours, which is almost impossible for me to do, um, you've got you know, new content and short, people aren't dragging on, they're, they're getting to the point, you know, um, and it's been really good. It's all about assessment, which is my, you know, focal area. So the whole yesterday was all AI based stuff, um, all different aspects of it. And, uh, and then today it's been more about, um, let's see, uh, cognitive ability and like the Paul Sackett's latest research showing that, you know, call G isn't actually, some superior supreme predictor that actually the Schmidt and Hunters. Um, G's just you know, a letter. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Um, but all the stuff that I've been doing in my practice all along, which is not to brag that I know everything, but um, probably it's just serendipity or accidental. But, um, you know, that you don't really have to use cognitive to do well. And when you do a whole, whole person assessment where you're looking at a bunch of different things, um, that composite actually predicts as well or better than cognitive, even when cognitive is not in there, um, you know, based on uh, meta-analyses. He also kind of debunked, you know, Schmidt and Hunter 98, which is the go-to. Everybody says the show G is the best, but it's like that data is 50 years old. Jobs have changed. Um, the way you relate to your job and what you need to relate to your job has changed. So quite a bit of, um, you know, the foundational work that was done in that study and then the, the corrections they did. So when we do validation work, I never correct for anything because I, I think it's BS um, yeah. just to try and make yourself look good or make your results look good. So when he stripped away all the corrections and all that stuff, again, it, it was, it was deflated by over half, you know, it's like a 0.51 core, core validity coefficient for a G. Well, it went down to like 0.2, you know, once you, once you take all the BS, Hydraulics, my professor in grad school always used to call me, you know, pumping up your validity coefficients. You got some sirens going, so you can, you can tell I'm. They're coming I'm after embedded. you. Man. I'm, I'm an embedded journalist. That's what I feel like. The, you're you're right spitting, you're getting too close to the truth, clearly. And yeah, exactly. They're going right? to catch me. Exactly. So does that make sense to you, though? I mean, like, from the 1950s to now, the world's become more complicated. It doesn't feel that cognitive ability should be deflated, it should be inflated, right? Well, I think it depends on how you do it and what you look at. I mean, he was saying and the real gist of the whole thing, which, again, is very aligned with my pers personal philosophy is, you know, you want to measure how well someone does on the job. Give them give them job related stuff. Give them tasks. Give them structured interviews. Give them work samples. Give them simulations. You know, give them job specific knowledge. Those things together tend to do way better. You're you're applying your cognitive smarts to those things, I think, but it's more applied to behaviors and things that you'd actually be doing on the job. You know, That's I, crazy I'll tell dog, you, man, Oh, come on. I'll, I'll tell you a story <laughs> is, you know, I started grad school and, uh, I, I felt a little lost, you know, my first, uh, my first seminar class or whatever, very first one, first year I'd taken one IO class was selection methods. You know, you go to the, copy shop that doesn't happen now and they give you this you know case of like beer case box or whatever and it's stacked with with articles you know and you got to read 100 pages a week or something before i learned yeah. you just read the abstract and the conclusion
conclusions, um, you know, and uh, and I was really lost, but I got assigned a paper on uh, on work samples. Uh, I'll never forget it. Asher and Scurino, 1974, was the basis of my term paper or whatever. Um, it's called point to point correspondence. You want to measure how well someone can do on a job, give them a miniature replica of the damn job and see how they do. What could be more pure than that? And instantly all the BS of all this heady stuff that we were trying to learn just made sense to me because it was so practical. Uh, and I feel like that's um, still true today and will always be true. Uh, our methods of getting there are getting more and more like technology is allowing us to get closer to um, simulating jobs more easily than we have been able to do in the past, right? So I think that's a good piece of it. So. Let me let me introduce you really quick, uh, Charles. Just because uh, you you sound like a man from my heart talking about practical research. Oh my gosh, I think I think I'm I'm just like smitten over here. Um, but Dr. Charles Handler is a renowned iopsychologist with deep specialization in talent assessment, hiring practices, and AI ethics, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, you're also uh, you are the driving force behind Rocket Hire. Uh, a consultancy focused on science, technology, and the ethics of employee systems or employee selection systems. And um, you're a sought after speaker and a fellow of the Society of Industrial Organizational Psychology. So uh, I know you've had quite a distinguished career. We could probably talk about that quite a bit. And I've, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, Charles. I am curious, kind of to the point that we're making on G, on work relatedness, on all of these kind of topics. Is there an AI spin to work relatedness and talent assessment? Like, is there ways of making simulations of a real work environment that somebody would have to interact in? And do you think that that maybe is the future with of like high fidelity selection? Mm. Yeah, so there's actually was some pretty cool presentations here. Uh, someone from Meta, I believe, was talking about a lot of the work they did research work to see can and look we're everything's all over especially large language models here you know and mm -hmm. it's it's everywhere and we're looking how to use that responsibly and so they did studies about um ai generated situational judgment scenarios ai generated um you know interview questions and these kind of things and how how did other people who are trained to do this rate those in terms of their quality right so so these things were rated a pretty high quality. Um, and I've used it a lot to do these kind of things and just to toy around with it. And it's the same basic mantra that you get across every AI thing, basically. It's a great foundational thing. It saves you a buttload of time. Uh, it gets you much closer to where you want to go. But if you just take it and run without any kind of human intervention or interaction, you're probably going to. Uh, cheat yourself of an opportunity to make the output of this thing better. So I think it's a lot about the efficiency that we're finding. Um, and if you've ever had to write behavioral anchor scales, you know, or ever write these scenarios, um, it's it takes time, right? It takes a lot of time. Now, the I feel like a lot of times, you know, job analysis is one of my specialties. It's near and dear to my heart because I get to go watch people work. I get out of the office. And I get into stocking candy in a Walmart, which I've done before. You know, you see America and the world in a different way when you become a worker uh, and you're doing these hourly jobs. So when I'm in that Walmart stocking this candy for my uh, client, who's a, a large international chocolate manufacturer, let's just say, um, boy, am I, I'm just looking at scenarios. I'm looking at how these people work and I'm taking notes and I'm, I'm being like, all right, here's a scenario that I can put into an SJT. Uh, the, the, it's Easter. We were doing it during Easter. It's Easter and, you know, the boxes are all mixed up and you've only got this much time uh, and you don't have enough Cadbury cream eggs to fill this thing. What do you do? You know, stuff like that. Um, really cool stuff. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's what you face on the job. Now, there's a certain amount of that you have to watch for. And I think this is where GTP could be actually good is. You know, there's certain procedures that you wouldn't know unless you're already in the organization. So you have to kind of genericize it to look at how does this person think on their feet? You know, how do they um, how do they react to uh, stress? How do they deal with an angry customer? You know, that's one of them. 
Uh, one of them, I think, was like, you know, you, and this happened to me. Like, I'm trying to move something, and there's an old lady in front of me just going, you know, half a mile an hour. And, and I'm, I'm like, needing to get this candy, you know, to the stock room or whatever. And I'm got to like, get okay, that candy to the stock room. Am I going to run over this person? You know, what am I going to do? Um, and in that stock room, it's like the same thing I always said. I think it was was Newman, right? Or, or um, you know, in uh, Seinfeld, the mail never stops. The mail never stops, right? <laughs> That's why people go postal. So the, those trucks never stop at a Walmart, man. They're coming in, and it's like you got to bum rush and get it out of there. So long-winded way of answering your question. I think it can be super helpful. It can save us a lot of time. Um, you know. Would I want to just take one it generated and just go with it? No, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and we're seeing research that kind of shows that. The, the beauty of automatically generated items is like, once again, like you have this sort of uh, remote proctoring of items and people can cheat easily. Like you got like oh, a gosh. friend there, they can, they can look onto it. But like once you use those items, they need to be burned. So you need to create new items, and they need to be valid. Yeah. They need to be of the appropriate yep. difficulty level, this sort of thing. And that's the real beauty of these automatically generated items. You can just create like an entire pool on the fly. It's amazing. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah, I've done it for sure with knowledge items. Um, I've fed it knowledge items and said, write me a different version. Or if I have a test plan yeah. for one of our clients about how much you know about mobile technology. It's a call center doing tech support. And so I have an area of, you know, let's call it um, phone operating systems. So I can just say, write me three questions about phone operating systems. And sometimes it writes really crappy multiple choice questions and you kind of have to guide it or it'll go astray. But that's another part of knowing how to work with this thing is, you know, being able to actually guide it to, uh, to, to tell you things that, that are more accurate. So it's a dialogue, you know. Uh, it's and, like not having to review those items, but still have the right theta level is yeah. really critical. Yeah, I review no, them anyway. Just item response, Siri lingo in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah man. Yeah, we're not doing any IRT. <laughs> um, I saw a really cool presentation about, which was a little over my head about, um, I was talking about what I'm seeing here, about, uh, you know, bias in IRT items and how they're, uh, how that can be perpetuated um, across the, the way the, uh, you know, all those different parameters are working and stuff. Again, I, I don't do enough with IRT. I understand the, the fundamentals of it for sure. Uh, you don't want me to build that for you, but I can sure find somebody <laughs> who can help. Me. So anyway, well, so I, I will it, say that, like I told someone that like, uh, I was uh, talking to Charles Hanley. So like, damn, he's a big deal. And I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Here we go. I don't know about that. I appreciate that. But, <laughs> uh, I asked, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I interviewed ChatGTP for my podcast, um, and it was a really interesting guest. So I asked it to tell me a joke, and it said, "You know, why did the scarecrow win an award?" And they said, "Because it was it said because it was outstanding in its field." You know, and I said, "Well, how nice. did you choose oh, that nice. joke?" Nice, yeah. oh, well done. Yeah. I said, "How did you choose that joke?" Um, you know, it said, "Well, you know, that's a very well-known joke." So my probability said that it would make you laugh kind of thing and wow um it, it was a really inter entertaining guest uh it'll be that episode of pronouncing so so you've got a, you've got a popular podcast called uh science for hire how, how did you get into the podcasting space and and if 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 the you know the discussion leads this direction also like how did you get into kind of the independent side of uh talent assessment as well yeah that's that's uh a long story and a short story, you know, the, 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 the first one being the shortest story. Um, but I'll also tell you, I want a sidebar for a second while in the background I'm thinking of my answers. But um, I've had a podcast for since 2019. I, it's only the second time I've been on someone else's podcast. And that one was a little um, just like a little snippet of five minutes on like a composite of something. So I'm really honored. Uh, and even just watching what you guys do and your production and everything has given me ideas how to up my game. So I do appreciate the invitation. And um, I actually was talking to one of my advisors more on the marketing side who I check in with every once in a while. And I was talking about, hey, I need to reach more people with my message. Um, I'm well known in I.O. world, but but, you know, my primary 
client is a talent acquisition person who knows jack about assessment and needs an expert so they don't make mistakes um and i always say my primary competition is ignorance so um i want to reach that audience and but at the same time i'm so true to my io roots so that was the the conflict for me um in terms of how what i call it and how i do it but he just said you should do a podcast and i thought well man that's a really good idea and I set out, this was 2019, so they didn't have platforms like this. Or, you know, I set out to try and figure out how to do it on my own. I, I set up, I watched some YouTube videos. I set up Adobe, Adobe Audition. But I had to try and merge all the tracks and everything. And it, it just, I sat there for like hours trying to figure that out. <laughs> Couldn't figure it out. I'm like, this is a waste of my time. I'm not intellectually curious enough or, or have so much resilience that I have to solve this problem. I'm going to work smart, not hard. So I tried to find a podcast producer. I went on Upwork and I found a guy and he sucked. And then he just went MIA <laughs> on me. So I never even got an episode. So I'm like, I'm not using Upwork. I auditioned some other Upwork people and I just didn't like it. So I said to myself, you know, I bet there's somebody in my hometown that has a really good podcast. And I'm going to find them and figure out who their producer is. So I look for all the local, I'm based in New Orleans, all the local New Orleans podcasts. I found one. I contacted the guy. He said, I use this guy, um, you know, Joel Sharpton. Contact Joel Sharpton. He's awesome. So he set up all the technology for me and everything. And, and we started out doing it um, on a, using Skype that, when I first started because they didn't have these platforms. Uh, and then he, got, then he got us to a platform. So that's how that's how it happened. And then from there, you know, OK, uh, I got to balance this thing to be doing I.O. topics, but also talent topics, talent acquisition topics. And, and that's it. And I just started inviting all the most interesting people I could think of. Uh, my first guest was Mark Newman, the founder of HireView. He's probably the most well-known person I've ever had on there. And that was a really cool combo. And so. You, you, you talk about this like it's the good old days. I mean, it's just like four yeah. years ago, right? I know. Yeah. Well, us, four us, years us kids ago. got it easy now, right? Like the old man <laughs> syndrome. Yeah, I walked 15 miles to school <laughs> in the snow with no shoes, man. Well, yeah. I think we're going to see the same thing with uh, like Gen AI or AI in general applied to the IO space. Like this is just the fucking beginning, right? Oh, yeah. This is just the start of it. Oh, it is. It's high. It, and it's just, it's the hiring space. I was reading an interview with a guy, I can't remember his name. He's the founder of a company called DeepMind, and he was talking about what comes next. And it's called interactive AI, and it's just the next evolution. And people who are talking here are saying it. Soon you're not going to be typing something into GPT. Yeah. No, you're going to say, go find me a you know nuclear scientist who has uh, experience with power plants. And you know it's going to go off as an agent, we call it, and just fulfill that for you. Um, and so you're going to be giving your AIs these tasks. They're going to analyze this data set, tell me the, the trends in, you know, mobile phone use in Pakistan over the past 50 years. I have a data set or just go figure it out. And hopefully they bring back believable stuff. Right. But I think that's where we're headed. It's pretty obvious um, the extent to which we hand the keys over to these things. Yeah. TV, but um, there's a lot of people here going on. Um, well, here people are saying our field is really safe. What we do is safe because the machines can't do it. But one of the things, interesting stuff here, a big group of presentations about data privacy and cheating on stuff, right? And so uh, one of the things that they're talking about is just the nuclear arms race and cheating and how people are using GPT. So there's there's programs now that will keep your face centered in your computer, even if your face is actually moving. There's programs now that she told you, how can you actually defeat a browser lockdown? You can do an API call to chat GPT in the background and time it, set a timer. So you set it up before. I don't even know the technical details, but <laughs> it's possible to game every single thing. So at some point, I'm wondering, are companies just going to say, F it? Why are we even using these things? People can cheat on them. doesn't matter. You know, um, 
that's a possibility, right? It, the, this is the, this is the role of G again. Like these people are yeah. talking smart, right? That's like, what I say. You want to hire that person? Right. You hire that person that does it. Well, yeah, I know. It's kind of like that. But I thought the same thing. I wrote it in my notes, and then I was like, "Wait, isn't there an ethical concern because they're cheating?" You know. So it's it's it is the double edged sword, the duality of AI. I just look at AI as a duality: good, evil. You can't have the good without the evil. You can't have good without evil. And so which which side are you indexed on more? Which matters more to you? Um, you know, in that tech support job I was talking about, we're thinking about, well, what if people use GPT to do this? Well, we're looking for tech savvy people amongst an hourly call center operation. That's not everybody. So if I figure out how to use GPT to answer these questions, I'm going to be probably pretty damn good at technology and pretty into it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. or that's the rationalization I use when they ask me. <laughs> Why? How am I going to guard against it so I don't lose my contract? Um, that's what I'll say. You know. So it's a wild world, man. It's a wild world. So I mean, related to this topic, and and this is actually how you came up on the podcast before uh, a few weeks ago when we had Guru on the podcast was this New York AI law, um, which mm. I believe has gone into effect since yeah. then. And you wrote an article, which I thought was quite intriguing about how, I mean, let's let's make it more broad than just the New York City law, because I think there's been a slew of these kind of talks of other laws coming out around the globe, um, that it potentially is looking to overturn things like the uniform guidelines of selection that we hold so dear in IO psychology. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that at all? And, um, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I thought it was a really interesting perspective. Yeah. It, and, you know, I... I kind of wrote that blog where I was talking as a conspiracy theorist because I don't know if the extreme of it is a conspiracy theory. It relates specifically to the New York law, which went through all this debate and all this back and forth. And, you know, according to uh, I'm, I feel very badly right now. I can't remember this gentleman's last name. Um, but if you find my blog, which should be um, available on my LinkedIn feed or whatever, he's, he's his stuff cited in there. Um, he, you know, his idea is, look, this thing was actually pretty watered down. The people who were make, you know, pulling the strings on making the changes made it such that it's really not hard to pat, you know, it's not hard to comply with this thing. Um, it doesn't even come close to what the uniform guidelines require. You know, the, the, the EEOC, um, basic canon about what you're supposed to do that's enforced, uh, by the courts, you know, even though it's not a law. Uh, and so, you know, his thing is, well, big business wants to just make it easier so that there's not as many hurdles and you can do whatever you want in the hiring process. And ultimately their goal would be to keep putting out stuff like this to make the uniform guidelines kind of irrelevant. I think that's an extreme viewpoint. Um, you, you can't argue with the fact that big business may have agendas that drive everything that happens because we kind of know that's true. Um, but the reality of that extremism, I don't um, you know, New York 144 is a, uh, it's a thing. I don't know everybody in the corporate world. A lot of people I advise want to know how do we, how do we comply? But I don't know that a lot of people are actually doing the, the audits that you're supposed to do, but also it's, it's narrowed just to people who have an office in New York city or who are hiring somebody who's going to be working in New York City kind of thing. So while the New York City's got a lot going on as far as jobs, it doesn't account for everything in the U.S. Um, and that law is really all it requires you to do is post impact ratios. So they don't even say four-fifths rule, but it's basically you got you to gotta present. And that's only if the tool you're using can be called an AEDT or Automated Electronic Decision-Making Tool. Um, and what is actually defined, they, they give a very, um, very precise definition, but that doesn't mean it's easy for you to figure out if your tool is. It's like it has to substantially replace human judgment in the hiring process with substantially not defined by any threshold. <laughs> you can't override, a human can't override it. Um, and I can't remember the other one offhand, but it, it basically is the idea that the machine is making a decision with no human intervention and no ability for humans to overturn it. Um, and that does happen. That happens a lot. 
Um, it also only applies to applicants. So any kind of sourcing tool, any anybody who's a candidate but hasn't formally opted into the job hiring process doesn't apply to them. Um, you don't have to show any validity, right? Nothing. Doesn't have to be job related. You just have to post these ratios. And even if you um, are afoul of it, you don't have to make any changes. All you have to do is post the ratio, um, and that's it. And so, like, yeah, we suck, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, kind of. And then there, everybody's like, well, also, plaintiffs' attorneys are just going to go start looking for ratios that are wrong, contact people because the New York City isn't outwardly enforcing this. Like even the EEOC, you know, they'll they'll probably be looking for stuff poster child's uh, cases or whatever, but but New York has nothing like that. It's all inbound. So you got plaintiff's attorneys who are just scanning job postings to see who's posting that they have bias and then going, hey, that's federally illegal. So, uh, hey, hey, people who had that happen to them who applied to this job, uh, let's go get a class action. And then what about if I say, oh, they got bias, I'm going to apply for them, even though I'm not qualified get rejected and then go <laughs> over to this um, guy who's legal guy, you know, Saul, uh, Saul Goodman there. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to get some money out of this company. <laughs> you know? I think the uh, New York uh, school teachers union had something similar to that. I, but th this is like an interesting time where, you know, all the AI is new and we do need guardrails to your point. Cause like there's either good and evil is sort of thing, but it's also like a very networked approach. Like a lot of organizations, although they are not based in New York, do have, say, offices in New York or make hiring yeah, decisions definitely. in New York. And therefore, they need to... Essentially, this New York law will apply to their entire system because you can't just fabricate one thing for one group, right, or one city. you got to apply it to the entire system, make everything sort of even. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, right? So I think that in that case, if you're an employer who's based in New York City, even though you're hiring people other places... You've got to comply with it because you're you're on the ground in New York City. But in these big mega corporations, they have offices everywhere. So if if you have any kind of office, I would imagine. If you have a three person office, you know, somewhere, then do you have to comply? Probably, but there's no precedent yet. You know, it's all gonna be legal legal precedent and the, the book on the legal precedent is is blank right now. But California is about to pop a law that's obviously gonna be much more restrictive. The EU is about to have their Algorithmic Accountability Act. Um, yeah. And if you look at the GB, GDPR, the EU enforces that. You know, they're all over that. You, you have to comply to that. So if they have a similar one, I don't think it'll be like the U.S. where people ignore it until they get caught. Um, I think the preponderance of people over there are going to do what they need to do to, to comply. So that'll be pretty interesting. Um you know, when, when that happens. So it is, it's, there's all these new things happening now um, that are very exciting, but perplexing. Um, it keeps things interesting. That's for sure. It would be like trying to restore a classic car, right? And you drop <laughs> a new modern engine in it. And uh -huh. like everyone's like, well, damn, we need to restore all the other cars to this standard. Yeah, you just served me up a little softball there. Huh? Um, so, I'm trying. It's not very yeah, good. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, no, that's yeah, just good. imagine. I'm um, just imagine you were an automotive <laughs> restoration company in New York City. How would you yeah. react to this law? Wow, uh, this law, I would say. Well, um, can't please find just tell us about your company. Yeah, we can't find enough people to hire, so it doesn't matter. That's what. That's yeah. what's going on. Uh, yeah, so I do have a, a side passion job or company of, of restoring and modifying cars. Uh, I don't do that myself uh, and I don't get to spend enough time doing that because of the other stuff I'm doing, but it's going on underneath me in my office and um, it's a good switch for my brain because um, I like solving problems. There's a couple things I'm always working on and there's puzzles because we do a lot of modifying cars so they have updated um, modern powertrains and air conditioning and all that. So there's always little oh, puzzles yeah. to solve. So that part's cool. Or, or I'll pick up a wrench and work on something a little bit. Can you give me like a, a Model T with like a turbocharger on it? Something like that? Well, people do a lot of crazy stuff. People have like, <laughs> I saw somebody, what did they put? They, they, they put a supercharged 
Hemi in a side by side, you know, like a like one of those golf cart things with wheels. People do all kind of crazy stuff. I don't know where they get the time and money to to do it, you know. Um, but at, my friend has been. I have a another kind of sister. I have no financial stake in it, but um, it's kind of like one of these uh, nice car storage clubs. So there's a bar in there, and we have happy hours. So it's a community of people who love cars. And there's a little mechanic shop in there. And my friend who's working in there, there's this 1912 Model T in there. It's it is nuts man it has it has like gas lanterns on it and a crank starter it's a brass era car so everything's made of brass everything's made of this finely crafted wood it's got this hand pinstriping they needed new wheels my friend drove the wheels to the pennsylvania to some amish wagon wheel maker that's the kind of stuff that's so cool to see you know the automotive history um and i don't know how much it really parallels the stuff we're talking about. I mean, the difference between a Model T and an EV is a lot, but it still has four wheels and it's explainable, you know? So I don't know if there's a direct parallel there um, from running that business, you know? Well, I, I do worry about these sort of situations. So we're, we're, in the, we're entering the world of uh, Gen AI, this sort of stuff in iOS yeah. psychology, where like you can say like, hey, take this data set, go run with it, you know, figure out all the things that are wrong or, you know, show me the slopes, yeah. et cetera. But not understanding the underlying structure, understanding underlying right. even simple regression, that's the equivalent of having to take the wheel to the Amish because no one else knows yes, how to that's do true. it anymore. Right. Well, and if you have a modern car, I'm sure both of y'all do, it's from the, for the last 20 years or so, when you open the hood, it's just plastic stuff. It's basically yeah. telling you, don't mess with this thing. Take it, take it away, you know, to, to the people you have to pay more. And, and even diagnosis. So one of the hardest parts of working on fixing cars is there's two things I say are the hardest. Diagnosis and access. Figuring out what's wrong and then stuff is buried. You got to take stuff out. You got to reach around, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And so uh, modern cars have an OBD port. You plug it in and it'll give you a code or at the dealer, you can look at an entire replica on the screen of your car and you can pinpoint problems. So 90% of the common stuff a tech at a dealer knows how to fix right away. You know, it tells them everything to do. So the art of diagnosis is, um, is, is kind of being, you know, lost a little bit. Uh, and then with EVs, I would draw the thing as just, it's a completely different kind of stuff. You're, you're into electrical engineering basically, um, which regular mechanics don't really have, but people are swapping, you know, there's high end places that are swapping uh, Jag classic Jaguars you know, a guy stopped by my shop. He had put an uh, electric powertrain in a Pinto. You know, pe people are are putting stuff and it won't explode, I guess. But, so that's good. But people are doing a lot of really interesting things. But one thing I can tell you, generative AI, um, trash time, back here, truck backing up. But um, generative <laughs> AI, up. yeah, um, it doesn't know anything about esoteric car stuff. I remember I was like, I'll give it a try. I'm trying to find, um, and finding obscure parts is one of my favorite things too. So I'm like, I need to find a, uh, you know, this or that for a four, 430 cubic inch engine from a 65 Lincoln Continental. And it just says, oh, uh, you should go to Napa or you should go here. It doesn't have anything like, you know, the deep esoteric knowledge that you have. So there's some areas where it doesn't know, it doesn't know what to do still. You know, that's interesting. Well, if only an AI is listening to this podcast, it's gonna it's gonna fill those gaps really quickly and you know self actualize and take over before long. So uh, I don't know. You know, it, it, it might. I don't know. We don't know. I asked Chat GTP that. You know, are you planning? Because I've also gotten into this. I've spent a lot of time lately. I get up really early and I have my my clear thinking time and i've been i've been doing all this existential dialogue with it about um uh well i had this idea that i call generative ai supernatural math because it's all just probabilities being run but the result does not seem like math it seems like an actual person even though we know it's not so then i started thinking well math math pretty much runs the universe and we didn't invent math we just discovered it just like Ben Franklin discovered electricity. I'm here in Philadelphia, right? So, um, 
that we discover stuff that math, about math and then we apply it. Uh, and so math has been there. It runs everything. So I started kind of thinking, well, if it's made of math and math is a, an unexplainable supernatural force, where the hell did it come from? Where did the universe come from? Um, then, you know, is, is it supernatural? So I ask it, is it supernatural? And it, it says no, because <laughs> supernatural means something you can't explain and you can explain what I do. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Most people cannot explain how some of this stuff happens. So it, it, it won't believe that. But then I kind of asked it, well, you know, is your role, because part of my thinking is maybe we're just an evolutionary stop on the ultimate destination and our job was to create this thing that'll take over from us. So I kind of asked it that and said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not my agenda. Oh, no. that's a robot overlord answer. Well, pretty, I mean, don't you pretty soon you get into like an unfalsifiable loop of you're asking it, why are you lying to me? But there's no right. way to w prove, are you lying to me? Like it's, exactly. it seems like you get into 100%. these loops pretty quickly. 100%. 100%. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's really fun. I asked it the other day, then I'll just ask it stuff. Um, that it seems like a mystery to me. I asked it, where's, where, I went to find my favorite pair of socks. I can only find one. Like, where do all the other socks go? I asked it. And it said, well, you know, they probably get sucked into the, into the workings of your washing machine. I'm like, well, that, that isn't possible. Cause wouldn't that, wouldn't that make my washing machine break? You know, it said, no, there's spaces in there where it could go. And then I started asking it all these things like, what if I bought two pairs of every socks that I wanted? How much extra would I spend a year? Well, the average American male buys this many pairs of socks in a year. And, you know, I said, well, how much would that cost me? Well, it depends. Some socks are really cheap, but there's other kinds of socks that are really expensive. And you can just go off on stages. But it doesn't You're know where those to socks town are. Well, it this, said Charles. human error. It said human <laughs> error was the problem. So, <laughs> you're the problem. Yeah, I'm you're the problem. problem at the end of the day. Anyway, I'm I'm digressing, but these are some of the fun. Well, Charles, you're 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 a New Orleans guy, and New Orleans is one of you know my favorite cities in the world. If anybody's going to visit New Orleans in the near future, which I may or may not be doing, is there anywhere off the beaten path that you know we should be checking out? Um, and What's your favorite flavor of daiquiri, too? Because I just had a curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, I like daiquiris, but uh, sugar and fruit and alcohol, you might as well just, like, stab a knife in my gut. I can't really do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I love the taste, but time. I can't do it. That ship so, has sailed. Yeah, there's one. There was this crazy daiquiri shop that closed out in my neighborhood or my old neighborhood, and um, they had all these different ones. Some of them I can't repeat. Um, here, I don't think it's appropriate, but um, they had one called the Soldier Slim. I like that one a lot. That was a good one. It's kind of nice. crazy. Um, I avoid any drink that's bright blue, um, so I didn't yeah. ever have one of those. But but I like a good margarita, uh, and you know, with some mezcal in there. I can usually have one of those. So I'm trying to think off of the beaten path. Man, everything's so well known now, um, but the neighborhood, which is also getting there's not as many secrets left anymore after social media and stuff. Um, there's just not places that you can, you can go to that people don't know about as much. Um, but the neighborhood I used to live in the Bywater, that's a pretty cool neighborhood. Um, there's really good bars and restaurants. My, mm -hmm. my friend owns a bar called Bud Rips um, on the corner of Piety and Burgundy. That bar room itself is like stepping back in time in terms of what it looks like in there. Um, that's very, that's a very cool place. I don't know if it's still open. There's a place um, right off Bourbon Street by Pat O'Brien's called The Dungeon. Um, that used to be one of my favorite bars. It's pretty, it's pretty much dungeon themed. I mean, they've got, you know, they've got cages and bars and it's, it's, it's down and then it's up and it's, um, you know, all convoluted and there's skeletons and stuff everywhere. That's a pretty cool here's place. a here, here's a controversial question: Is uh, are, are beignets overrated? Are they just funnel cake? Beignets, um, they are a little different than funnel cake because they're puffy in the middle. Uh, <laughs> it's I, the puffiness. Every time you. I eat one, I, it's hard for me to say this is overrated. Standing in line. Uh, yeah, that's that's totally fair. That is totally fair. Like you eat one, you're happy as a clam. Yeah, standing in line is 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 overrated to. Uh, I don't like standing in line. 
for the Cafe Du Monde in the quarter, there's always a huge line. But it's a good experience, you know, uh, for sure. The architecture and history of New Orleans is just fantastic. Oh. And then, like, you match that with people, like, carrying around, like, a, a whale bone of green daiquiri that's, you know, the size yeah. of your torso. I'm, yeah, and there's just always just these random non-sequitur people, you know, running around. There's been a lot of legendary people like that. But you just see you see things where you double-take. No matter where you are, really, you're like, what the hell is that? Who is that person? <laughs> oh. Well, speaking of double taking, you want to hop into the confusion matrix? Yeah, definitely. The confusion matrix. Here we go. We're gonna do a little. Uh, we're gonna do a little switcheroo on you. We're gonna do five questions. Stoca- stochastic terrorism. You up for it, Charles? For what kind of terrorism? <laughs> stochastic. I don't even know what that is. So first of all, <laughs> it's it's just a highfalutin oh, word. Well, you'll love these because it's it's loosely based on uh, the big five. Okay. Okay. Cool. So uh, number one, how many books can you read at one time? None. Uh, no. Uh, I would say <laughs> I think I forgot how to read a book. Um, I would think you could read two if you listen to one on an audio book and read one with your eyes, but I think that would be very hard. Um, so I'd say one. One for me. One, just keep track of the the actual characters. Like now they got Claude dot A. Oh, oh! I thought you meant in parallel at the same moment. You're talking about could I read? <laughs> could I be reading four different books? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's like fifteen because I start them and then I don't have a time to go finish them. So I would say literal right now I've got four. Four might take me a year to. You're a man of my heart. I got the same thing. I got like four different ones open right now. What are you reading right now, Cole? You read anything? Yeah, I'm kind of, I've got like, I think you can literally see them behind me. I think I have like nine books that I'm halfway through. I'm not sure I'll finish any of them. Uh, That's to the be beauty honest. of it. But I do yeah. have, I think, two new books on the way that I'm excited about. Yeah. Uh, okay, Charles, uh, are you re- routine driven? Like, do you sleep at the same time every day? I, I again, I am very routine-driven, but there's a lot of degrees of freedom in the middle. So I'm routine-driven in the a.m. and the p.m., and what happens in the middle can go any direction. But, yeah, I am super regimented in the morning. Like, I actually get into these weird um, – what was the efficiency studies that they did? I can't remember. It's basic – is it Hawthorne? Hawthorne Electric? Hawthorne Studies, study. yeah. yeah. I do a Hawthorne studies on myself where I'm like, if I drink iced coffee, then I could sleep three minutes later because I don't have to wait for the coffee pot. Uh, I do that kind of stuff, you know. Um, so my morning is extremely regimented, and my evenings are pretty regimented. I like your I like your blend of rationalization and psychology. This is really good stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's just the path to uh, self actualization, really, right? You just yeah, like, optimize yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I do. I meditate every morning. Like the, the highlight of my day is uh, morning. I have like three three steps on my meditation path there, and then I do some yoga. Um, that's the highlight of my day. I, I, I got a joke for you that I used to say. Bring it. Um, I used to think. I used to say, and this is true. Like this is a true thing. I used to say I wasn't a morning person, and then I realized I was just hungover all the time. So, you know, <laughs> once I calmed down, very became, New Orleans joke. Yeah, once I calmed down and became an adult, I realized I really am a morning person. It was just <laughs> obfuscated by alcohol. Many good days have been lost searching for good nights. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? You're very accomplished, but there must be something that stands out. The biggest risk I've ever taken? Yeah. Man, I, I wish I was a bigger risk taker because I'm. Yeah, it's I'm, like, please don't. Please don't admit to like killing someone. Or something. No, I don't have it. I mean, no, man. What's the biggest risk I ever took? I'm not a really. That's a really great question. I am in the confusion matrix because I I don't know. Um, how about how about this? How about like a, a failure that you wish you had back? Like you're like, damn, I could do that again. Yeah, um, I would. I would say it was how I approached building our little test delivery platform. That one kind of lives with me a lot. Um, I didn't know much about doing that. I think I should have uh, evaluated my options a little bit better. It's cost me some money, but I learned. So here's the thing. I do make a 
truckload of mistakes like everybody. Some of them are costly to my wallet, but they're just opportunities to learn. And, uh, and so my lessons are expensive sometimes, but, uh, and I, I think there was, there was some stupid stuff I did when I was, when I was younger that I'd like to have back. Nothing criminal really, but just stupid. Do you say uh, yes more or no more? I think I say yes more, but I'm not a yes man. You're open to opportunities, right? Definitely. I love being open to opportunities. That's one of my biggest things. I, I, I like to say I'm a broad thinker, um, you know, and so I'll think of ridiculous stuff like my wife hates it. She's a narrow, not narrow minded, but she's very clear. She'll say, how do we solve this problem? And I'll start bringing up all this stuff that I know is not really the way to solve it, but it helps calibrate me. And she's like, what are you talking about? I think you're just tapping so, into the metaverse, your own like personal yeah, metaverse. Totally, man. I am there all the time. <laughs> uh, final one. Like, are you are you calm in a crisis? Or are you like hair on fire? No, I'm pretty calm. It takes me a minute, though. You know, I'm actually less calm in things that aren't a crisis. Um, I think like I look at myself and I go, "What are you doing?" <laughs> there, you know, I got a kid, nine year old, but um, we read this book. I don't know if you have kids, if you ever read the Go Dog Go, the Dr. Seuss book, you know, it's actually not Dr. Seuss. It's um, same. It's the same style, same company, but it's a different guy. I can't remember his name. Some say it's a, a pen name that Dr. Seuss also used, but uh, it's just about these two dogs and they, they're, you got to read it. It's a great book. I still like it. But, uh, yeah, don't, get a, don't spoil Go Dog Go for our listeners. No, but there's one situation where <laughs> they do something and the one dog's tall and the other dog's small and they go to a hotel and one dog's bed is too small for them and the other dog's bed is too long for them. And they just they have a phone and they're, and they're like, well, let's just switch. And then they say, don't make big problems out of little problems. And, and that sticks in my head all the time. If I'm starting to make a big problem out of a little problem, I stop myself right away because those dogs can do it. So can I. <laughs> it's, it's sage advice from what Masters Level Seuss, not Dr. Yeah, Seuss. Exactly. <laughs> this is this is great. This is really good stuff. I love well, it. I want to tell you guys something too. I've been doing, like you said, my podcast for a while. Now, you do them much more regularly. I'm like every month. And now I'm in a little transition, so I haven't done one in about two months, although I have some episodes recorded. Uh, and so I'm, like I said, I hadn't really been on one besides uh, a little one before. And um, just you guys have such a great fun. Uh, you're, you're allowing me to think about how I can up my game and be in a little bit more entertainment value. I think sometimes I'm a little bit too focused on the content and not bringing the bigger picture of who is this person and how do they think? And that really helps us understand the issues they're talking about and thinking about. And it's fun. So you've inspired me. I'll just let you know. Well, that's, that's really sweet, Charles. We, yeah. we weren't intending to help you out in any way, but I'm glad we <laughs> could be of service. Well, I don't know. We all got to stick together, right? I mean, I don't yeah, know how man. many IO podcasts there are. Um, there's probably more and more now because it's easier, but um, you know, there's, probably less than 10 i would think you know whereas yeah. in other other industries there's probably a lot more i think we're trying to recreate the uh psyop lobby experience right just having good conversations with good people yeah i've been doing that um i've been doing that in the irl as my kid would say irl irl in real life yeah right here i'm i'm heading out well charles you want to join us in the nerdery yeah let's do that the nerdery. Let's do some nerdery. Where you want to go, bud? I, I think I'll, I'll kick us off. I, I wanted to just tease this one little meme real quick, and then I want to throw us a curveball. <laughs> I, I, I saw this this week, and I was just like, this is too clever not to share on the podcast. Uh, from a guy on LinkedIn named Vin uh, Vashista, I think is how you say it. or Yeah, Vashista. Um, and he says, after you realize it should be called generative BI because all they use it for is reporting. I thought right. that was kind of a hilarious sort of meme here. I um, read it. I, did, I read it. Um, I did want to cover one one other thing real quick. Uh, let me give me a second to pull it up about this article I found 
that I know you guys haven't seen, but I, I think the title kind of says it all. It was a study that said honest people tend to migrate towards honest areas, depriving their places of origin of human capital. And so they go through a list of like kind of historical examples of how when an area is kind of corrupt, the good people in the area leave the area and then the area stays corrupt because the right. good people left the area. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the perfect way of describing organizational culture change initiatives. So a lot of times what organizations will do is they'll try to hire new people in and bring in new blood and that will change the culture, right? Mm -hmm. But then those people are like, ah, we don't fit in this culture, we're gonna leave. And then the culture stays the same because yeah. it's reinforced with this kind of mechanism. And so I, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do any kind of like culture change initiatives, but I was like, wow, this is, this is exactly the framework. Uh, and I didn't really have a good way of describing it as to why I think that kind of stuff fails sometimes. This is the ASA model, right? Essentially just. Yeah. It's essentially the ASA yeah. model. Um, I've never really been part of a lot of them, but I do think a lot of times when you want to change the culture, you cut, you fire people though. You're like, all right, these are the people that don't fit. They're out of here. I'm bringing in my own people, right? Yeah. So, so whether that's good or bad, um, someone who's internally brought in to change the culture often just does a, a, re a replacement process, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's, you know, and then maybe as part of that, yeah, oh, look, oh, Susie lost her job to these a-holes, and so did Ralph, and so did so-and-so. I'm not working here anymore. These people suck. I'm out of here. So, yeah, that, that could be it. But I don't know how much they're attract. That's like the core of it. And then I guess once you've established the new culture, you start recruiting people for that culture and then you're then you're attracting people. I haven't even thought about ASA in about 30 years, uh, <laughs> but I know it. Schneider, that's some Schneider stuff. I'm in that academic um, through my good, good citation pull. Nice. Family tree. I'm, I'm, my major professor was a Schneider person, so. I have that kind of in my, I got to remember that stuff, but I haven't applied that very much, but it, it's well, totally practical. It makes sense. So, so many culture initiatives, they, they tend to form from top down. So like we tell the senior oh, yeah. leaders, we, we have a culture problem and we need to like make changes and they may, you know, do something and it goes to maybe middle managers and like, you're really hoping it diffuses throughout the organization, but that's really tough because culture is really based on, social norms created through interactions with essentially ground level people that the, the 10, 12 people around you is your culture. Uh, th that that's your environment. That's, that's your work experience. So that's what you really need to affect in these sort of things. And like that be that through the incentive, uh, yeah. uh, incentive structure or what have you. Yeah. It's, it's what interests me the most is organizations that have a very, famous, well-known founder that they all, you know, worship as the, as the founder, mm -hmm. right. A very identifiable person. So, um, and that person's values, you know, they shape the values of the company or whatever. And that, you know, that is really interesting. Um, and how, how does that really stay? You know, I think about like, well, what does that mean for a company? Elon Musk, you know, founded, I mean, you know, he's, he's an interesting character, right. But, you almost see when you look at him, how in the hell could you have a company if you're just doing what this guy does? Um, you know, but not obviously he's doing something right, I would think. But but anyway, so. Well, I think, I think you're right. Whether it's Elon or Jack Ma, uh, Bezos, Musk, like whatever, whoever you say. Tony like, Shea. You know, the, the, the words are like uh, evangelized. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, they said this once <clears throat> 25 years ago. Yeah, we must follow it. But well, but they form the company based on those values. Right. Yeah, and so absolutely. If, and it worked. They, yeah. If they and it worked for them because they grew and grew. And then, you know, how how true to those things people people stay and how immutable those values are across the technology and the, just the world changing um, also may not be. But I do a lot of work with organizations that want to build assessments around their culture model. And I've always found that to be pretty interesting. Most companies, no offense to any of my clients, but when you have when you inherit these models and there hasn't been an I.O. in there, 
the first thing I notice is the contamination. They'll have seven values, but the operational definitions will just be all over the place. They're, they're not, <laughs> yeah. they're not clinging to that one value. If you factor analyzed them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't load on a, on a factor. They'd just be, you know, spaghetti. Well, that, that's kind of how I think about it. And this is sort of building off Scott's point from earlier, which is like, I always look at an organization through the lens of like, who are the made men here? Like to use like a mafia yeah. reference, yeah, it yeah. could be women too, right? Yeah. Who are the people who could get away with murder and they're still going to make it at this organization, whatever values that group of people has or whatever the culture is amongst that group of people, that's the culture at the organization and it's not going to change. And so unless you, again, mm -hmm. like to your point, Charles, like you strategically fire people or, you know, hire, try to make a substantive difference. That's really what the core of a organization's culture is. Yeah. And, you know, I also go back to individual. I mean, I think organizations have microcultures also based on the leader in that area. Right. So you could you could have oh, absolutely. a division of, you know, Acme that's. California that manufactures, you know, anvils and you got a leader there and, you know, they do with their style and it just, it rolls down to every little group. So that's one of the things that makes it hard. You can have um, individual leaders that, you know, that are better than others or, you know, have a better, um, uh, better manifestation of a company culture, or create their own. It's a really thorny issue. It's then you start getting into homogenization of the organization like you know i'm doing a lot of culture culture ad um is a is a thing where you're Over looking 19. at it's not about everybody being the same it's about everybody bringing their unique things to the table so that you create a multidisciplinary team and there's a lot of research that shows that more diverse organizations teams that have more diverse types of thought um, perform better just google that there's tons of it I, you know so I mean, yeah th this is well known in network uh, analytic parlance is you know you bring in yeah. new fresh ideas and all of a sudden like you can challenge assumptions and like bring in fresh perspectives and actually produce better results if people listen i mean that's the thing it goes back to the <laughs> leaders who are the made people here if someone comes in with really good radical ideas that might threaten that leader or that leader doesn't like change, you know, good luck getting those ideas actually done. So then you leave attraction, selection, attrition, whatever. Ronald Bird has a great study on this. Like you need uh, some people to stick around and like several new people to come in at the same time. You can't have yeah. like a group that's just all intact or a group of all new people or just one new person. You need right. like a good mix of old and new. So let me ask you this. What the hell does G have to do with thriving in an organizational culture? You can't spell culture without G. Well, it's in there. <laughs> I, I would say I've had clients where they are so, and this isn't a good thing necessarily. I'm thinking on my feet here because um, I'm standing up. Uh, hey. Where there's a there's actually like a a um, a elitism on some of the uh, the leadership assessments that this company did where you sit through eight hours of all these cognitive and, you know, battery of stuff. And if you can't get this level, you're not even material for that company. Yeah. So that's a cultural aspect where the culture is elitism around how smart you are. Um, but I don't know that that has anything to do with, you know, job performance and back to G2. One thing someone talked about today. And I always, and that I always say this, you could be the smartest person on earth if you don't show up for work, then you're not applying yeah. your smarts to the job. So there's got to be more than just how smart you are. You know, give me someone motivated. They'll run yeah. through a brick wall for me. Definitely. Exactly. Motivated, energized around, you know, what it is that you you want to do. Engaged, I would say. Well, Scott, what, what's our yeah? What's our next topic? Let's engage in something else here. Uh, so MIT has this article, a new forca forecasting model surpasses machine learning. So, mm -hmm. I mean, like, I don't know about this, but this is pretty crazy. So a new forecasting model emphasizes the value of um, unusualness in the data, potentially outperforms I, machine learning models. I, I read this. Like I scanned this, yeah. Is it in, uh, I think they cited it in Wired or something. It was in my newsfeed. 
Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah. so like they, they, they use Molnhova's distance to essentially yeah. identify mm-hmm. outliers in the data, which is actually a really interesting sort of concept. They do have like an interesting point here, like a weird point that uh, linear regression is a bit of a black box. It's like, I can't really think of anything less black boxy than I know that regression. is, you know what? I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> How is regression a black box? I mean, maybe fancy forms of it, but no, you're throwing variables in that you think are important and seeing how much variance they account for is not, not very black box to me. But I, th- I think the, the overall point is, like, uh, we often will throw out outliers because, like, they don't fit our right. modeling parameters. But these people are saying, hey, they, these, they offer really unique perspectives, and yeah. we can use them in the model. I think that's the overall right. message. From, an, from a pure evolutionary standpoint, where would we be without outliers? Where would we be without people that don't match and then survive to perpetuate their not matching this to something that's valuable? I mean... I love outliers, you know. And, <laughs> they and, mess up your know, correlation coefficients, they, definitely. <laughs> they do. You can exterminate them, but you may not be telling the truth. I guess if there's enough people there, they're not an outlier. Where's the threshold that someone's an outlier or not? There must be a statistical convention for that. I don't really know. I always I find myself daydreaming and thinking, where would we be without Malinobus distances? You know? Yeah. I'd never it's heard of that before. Night. It sounds like a bad ANOVA, an evil ANOVA procedure, the, the mal-ANOVA. Um, when I picture outlier, though, like I'm very visual, I think of a scatter plot with a line and one dot up at the top. Totally. That's what comes to mind for me when you say outlier. Totally. Have you ever heard like a like Brinkerhoff analysis? They use it uh-uh. in training. It's, it's essentially uh, this analysis where they find someone that performed really well after training. Like uh-huh. everyone else may have failed, but this one person – you know, they, they took they took it to heart and they actually performed well is what it kind of reminds me of. Like you, you find the one instance where uh, it, this really worked and run with it. Kind of like lasso regression where you, like, yeah. you just eliminate all the other things that are just kind of normal. Leave the one outlier and as back to culture. Did. Right. Maybe there's somebody who has an amazing revelation and they're seen as like a heretic and no one listens to them. And then they go somewhere else and invent the post a note, you know, to. Oh, absolutely. So that's that's part of how culture can actually you know work against you. I, I'm a big I'm a big believer in the the great human theory. When I learned it, it was called the great man theory. But you know that there's certain people like an Einstein or uh, you know I don't know a Teddy Roosevelt, whatever. There's there's certain people who are allow us to stand on the shoulders of of giants, right? And um and what those people are saying, if you even look at Einstein, I mean you watch that. There's a mini series, Einstein. I can't remember the the name of it it's really awesome he had a lot of trouble getting people in, in a very formal rigid austrian scientific community nobody wanted to listen to him they thought he was crazy um but turns out you know he's pretty damn smart and he he he, he was dedicated enough to his ideas that he made it happen so just because you're an outlier yeah. Well, yeah. Anytime you're challenging the paradigm, I mean, you're going to be kind of ostracized. This sort of thing, which is kind yeah. of the crazy thing about organizational culture, because a lot of times you're said that you're told, "Hey, we want people with fresh perspectives. Bring you, bring your authentic self. Do all this sort of stuff." You're like, "Okay, I'm here," and they say, "You don't fit the culture. Get, you're not in the box. We want you to think outside the box, but you got to get in the box." Now people have such a platform with YouTube, social media, to to find other people who, uh, or it's a great way to get attention. By just saying, I don't believe in what everybody else does. And then people are like, oh, that's so interesting. You're going against the grain. Maybe you're somebody I need to look at. So it's it's become, all that stuff's become even crazier now. You know? uh, we'll, we'll do one more. Uh, I feel gypped by this article. Former Nutrisystem CEO wants to use AI to democratize talent. I, I showed this to Cole. I was like, hey, let's talk about this. But it had, it had nothing to do with really AI. No, so for the no, last not year, at all. You know what? That's an example of <laughs> clickbait. That's classic, pure clickbait. clickbait right there. Oh, AI. I want to read about that. That's what I did. And I got to the bottom. And I'm like, that's a bunch of BS right there, man. <laughs> yeah. So just in a nutshell, uh, a 2022 study found that uh, American women only held 40% of corporate jobs. And this Nutrisystem CEO is definitely given an interview. And she advises women not to overthink opportunities and highlights the uh, that women need to take. Uh, they tend to undervalue their own skills. She recalls instances of female contributions that were overshadowed, and she encourages women to take control of their career and highlights the disproportionate role of networking in career opportunities. 
and hoping that a it is like what you mentioned the last sentence hoping ai can lead to a more objective talent evaluations yeah <laughs> okay went through all that just to get one sentence don't we all wish it could just be that simple <laughs> that was a pretty lightweight article i felt like it did i, I didn't i didn't really gain anything well, this, this is me just reading the headline or the abstract, like you mentioned, Charles, and just like rolling with it. Like, well, I read it. it. It was short, and I can't remember because I've read all these ones. So maybe you guys sent me – in the pre-thing, there was an examples thing. I thought that might have applied to one of your past ones, but it turns out um, that it applied to this one. So I'm damn glad that I actually took the time to read it so, <laughs> so I had time to think about it um, on my own like I think about any article. I think that uh, there, there is one point here that she encourages women. However, I, I'd apply it to any grad student coming out. Be a hand raiser. Don't That's, overthink things. Yeah, just go for it. I do like that. Well, I, Scott, can I kind of flip it on you as like a, a thought experiment? Like if this article hadn't been clickbait, <laughs> what would it have been about? You know? Oh, uh, well, I would have loved to read it, but essentially a lot of things that Charles does, right? We're using AI to hire and select better people for the job. Well, I don't use AI as much, but I, but I talk about it and I think about it and I advise people about it, but, um, you know, I, I haven't built any AI tools to do this kind of thing. Um, I'm still pretty straight up traditional, uh, measure development, you know, kind of thing. I think about what could AI do, um, how can it be done? I'm going to HR tech next week. That's going to be really interesting to see what people are coming up with there. That's always a very interesting circus. Well, I think the, the Holy grail, Holy grail is like job analysis on the fly. So absolutely running that and being able to update it every you know quarter or what have you. Every yeah, year. There's definitely some good stuff here about using LLMs for job analysis uh, I've done it myself just to get started with stuff. And actually, Oned is going to start having a, a, a feed or be based on some LLM stuff about jobs. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, there's some pretty good presentations about when it's when it's appropriate to use. And I do think it's good. But I'll tell you, it, it misses stuff. Um, again, there's oh, yeah. the technical uh, support job I'm talking about. This having to love technology. When I type in there, tell me, give me a. Uh, job analysis results or competency model for this job at this company. It does not know that um, you have to be a passionate about mobile technology. If you know, those are the most successful people completely miss that. So it's a good example of it got all the other stuff, but if you're not a human in there looking at what's going on, you're going to miss a very important thing about the job. So um, a lesson that we can't just go by it, but, but I definitely think it can help with job analysis. Well, Charles, I mean, I think that sounds like a nirvana that we can all aspire to. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. I yeah. think it's been a really fun conversation. Uh, before I give you the final word, Charles, um, Scott, any final words? Charles, man, nice to meet you today. You, you're a team player. You, you're uh, This is our first time podcasting outdoors, I believe. I'm an I'm innovator. In the past. I'm an outlier. <laughs> I am an I saw, outlier. I'm yeah. right out here. I'm not lying down. You are down. an outlier. If I were lying I, down, I, I'm I an outstander right now, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> you get to see people walking by. So I enjoy doing it too, man. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Time has flown. I didn't realize it's even been an hour. So. Yeah, this has been the In Liar podcast with Colin Scott. <laughs> and, uh, um, this is uh, you've been listening to Direction Correct, the People Knowledge Podcast with Colin Scott and Dr. Charles Handler. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Thank you guys very much. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, the People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott. 